And welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. We're joined this episode by business journalist Jason Del Rey, who spent a decade at the leading technology online publication Recode, where he was a senior commerce correspondent. He was also host of Land of the Giants, a narrative podcast focusing on the rise and impact of Amazon, and he's producer of Code Commerce, an event series featuring interviews with influential executives and entrepreneurs who work at the intersection of technology and commerce. He's a graduate of Georgetown and the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and author of Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle of, for Our Wallets. He was named in 2019 by the National Retail Federation as one of 25 people shaping retail's future. So we'll have an opportunity to speak with him about that and many other things. If you have questions for him or comments, Please feel free to send them to us, and remember that you can be a member of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny simply by going to graymatter.show, and that's Gray with an E, and welcome Jason Del Rey. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Glad to have you, and uh, I thought maybe we'd talk about these two global giants initially. Um, boy, I remember seeing uh, a review of the book, it said a story of ego and revenge and the changing way we shop, live, and work. I mean, that's really the kind of... Uh, hype that will get you interested and got a lot of people interested. I know the book did well. These two Goliaths, as they're called, defining business for our generation, perhaps, in the clash, as many put it. But Amazon's winning the war, aren't they? They're probably pretty much already won the war. I would say that's an un unknown answer right now. Um, they, they are many miles ahead in e-commerce, but in the last few years, they have really tried to expand into physical retail, where some 80% of transactions still happen, while Walmart comes in the other direction to digital. And um, I'd say as of right now, Walmart's finally doing a better job uh, in in their digital world than Amazon is in physical. And so I think Amazon's really at an inflection point right now. Goliath, in many ways, um, ahead of Walmart, in many ways online, but physical retail has been a real struggle for them. And um, I think they feel like they need to succeed there to reach their uh, ultimate goals. Why was um, Walmart so slow? Uh, maybe that's too harsh a characterization, but in getting on board just online, I mean, it's kind of remains a little bit of a mystery. They thought that being online was a cute side project. Wasn't that the phrasing? <laughs> I mean, that, that's how it came across. That's how they treated it. Uh, I have a great anecdote in my book. I found this former Walmart employee named Robert Davis. He believed in e-commerce back in the mid-90s, was experimenting inside Walmart, thought Walmart could be what Amazon has become online. And the CEO at the time, David Glass, you know, when Robert was asking for a little more commitment to e-commerce back in 1998, CEO said, this thing will never be uh, bigger than a single Sam's Club uh, store annual sales. And, um, you know, it's kind of uh, easy to understand that thinking back then. Walmart was was the titan, and um, this thing was new. And so uh, Robert and a bunch of other Walmart employees back then, they end up going to Amazon, um, being key key to their success there. Um, so I think, I think they were also, as years went on, they were just um, scared of what it would do to their profitability at Walmart. Their in-store sales are everything much more profitable than than online sales back in the early days. And so it was this classic innovator's dilemma, I believe. Well, they had the super centers. They were paying a lot of attention to that, certainly, maybe to the uh, detriment of getting in, into the online world. But you're talking about uh, fear that Walmart had. They also had fear of what could have been a lot of bucks for them in terms of health care. I didn't tell that story. Because I think they were afraid they were going to get nailed like they did with opioids and things of that sort by the DOJ. Yeah, so, um, you know, year, years later, you know, I have a whole chapter in the book about uh, each company's ambition in healthcare, something I didn't know a ton about before I started reporting the book, but I, I got up to speed uh, with the help of some great sources. And... Uh, yeah, in recent years, they battled Amazon for an acquisition of a young online pharmacy called PillPack. Um, they were, Walmart was going to make this big splashy deal. And then at the last minute, they put a pause on the talks. Still unclear what happened, but it was around the same time the DOJ was, in fact, 
um, starting to investigate Walmart in relations to their pharmacies, um, uh, sales of opioids. And, uh, and so Amazon ends up sort of stealing this acquisition, one of many that went Amazon's way instead of Walmart's way. And Walmart's current CEO, Doug McMillan, on the day the Amazon deal for this startup called PillPack was announced, he actually called the founder of PillPack trying to get him to back out of a deal. Um, this was the kind of like um, back and forth between the companies that I tried, you know, behind the scenes that I tried to tell readers about, the influence they had on each other's strategies that has largely gone unknown, I believe, until, until my deep dive in this book. Well, it is a deep dive. Congratulations on the book. Uh, it's very revelatory and it's very illuminating. Uh, and I, I see that you got a plug, in fact, on the book from Brad Stone, who I've done a number of interviews with, who is head of uh, tech writing at Bloomberg. He calls it a bloody, ruthless rivalry. And that's not necessarily hyperbolic. I mean, they were trying to really pound each other into the ground and all other competition. <laughs> That they are, and at different points in their histories, as I chronicle in the book, you know, maybe one cared about the other or, or was worried about the other more than the other. I think at this point in history, they're actually both pretty, you know, pretty aware of the threat to each other's business. Um, but it took inside Walmart. Um, uh, a couple of entrepreneurs coming in, a guy named Mark Laurie, who uh, once sold diapers.com to Amazon, then sold jet.com to Walmart, took him and a couple of leaders to really increase the urgency on the digital side inside Walmart. And to the point that Walmart's CEO, to the board, as I report, he actually called Amazon an existential threat to their business. Um, this was about maybe five or six years ago. And, this is Doug uh, McMillan you're talking about? Doug McMillan, yeah. yep. The, the current CEO of Walmart been there a decade and uh and so it it you know and and they on the labor side they also impact how how their warehouses run um trying to copy from each other in different ways over the years so it really is just fierce across the board I got a question uh, from John in Reno Nevada and we'll take your questions uh now if you want to Bring him to the fore here. John says, many tech markets end up with two dominant players, an open and a closed system. Amazon seems to be both with first party and marketplace sales. Mm. Who, if anyone, will be second dominant player in online retail? Well, right now it's Walmart. Finally, yeah. they weren't. They weren't for a long time. Uh, so, and and I think they finally are sort of hitting their stride. Finally, using their stores as an advantage that Amazon long feared they would. So you can order online and get delivery or pickup from a nearby super center. And in ninety, and uh, I think ninety percent of the country, uh, everyone is 10, 10 miles or less from a Walmart center. So you know, outside of maybe San Francisco and New York City, um, they really everyone's near a Walmart. So. Um, I, it feels like it's going to be Walmart, at least in the U.S. market, and in some other key markets like India, uh, where both are, are, are top dog there with the help of uh, some acquisitions as well. I'm reading, though, about Walmart getting hurt by not only theft in the stores that's rampant and ubiquitous, especially in certain places, San Francisco being a prime example, but also maybe organized crime being behind a lot of those thefts. They're getting hurt with their bricks and mortar. So, so. A lot of the traditional brick-and-mortar retailers are, are talking about this issue. Target's another one that has really harped on it in their earnings calls. And um, it, it is a real problem, but I, I am some at times I, I do wonder whether some of the retailers are using this a little bit as as an excuse for some disappointments in other ways in their business, um, you know, not not keeping in stock the inventory that they need to, or being unable to liquidate inventory as quickly as they need to. So it it is a real it is a real threat. Um, I think Walmart has has seemingly they're they're trying to deal with it, um, but Amazon, you know, uh, they sometimes benefit from this. They, you know, you may, that great deal on Amazon that's $40, $40 below an in-store price, it may be because Amazon squeezed the vendor, but it also may be because you're buying stolen goods. They're, they're spending a lot of money trying to figure it out, but they've been one uh, beneficiary of, of this trend, whether they want to admit it or not. What about the fact that when it comes to Wall Street, the profits of Walmart are sent but with Amazon, we're talking about investments for the most part. It's a very different ballgame, different calculus. Yeah. One of the most brilliant things uh, 
Jeff Bezos ever did. And at the time, his CFO, who, who's since uh, passed away, Joey Covey, what they did when they went public, they, they from day one said to Wall Street, like, we are thinking long term. Uh, we'll worry. We will worry about free cash flow, but uh, profits you should you should not expect for a long time because there's so much growth to be had. And they stuck with that messaging and has largely worked for them. Whereas Walmart, by the time Amazon went public, Walmart had been public for years, and Wall Street expected profits, profits, profits. And so, you know, I, I chronicle in my book. You have some real. Uh, innovators dilemma, sort of tension and infighting between e-commerce and physical retail teams inside of Walmart the last few years. And a big part of that is uh, profits versus growth mentality. And um, so that 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 is sort of created for Amazon in the early years with Wall Street, what some analysts have called the halt. They almost had a hall pass. Um, they were they got this long leash to lose money for a long time, and eventually turned it on uh, in recent years with advertising business and the very profitable Amazon Web Services business as well. Again, our guest is Jason Del Rey, and we have Benjamin from Birmingham wanting to know, caught between Amazon and Walmart, how do smaller retailers, even mom and pop, stay relevant? What can they do to survive? That's a Thank great you for question. question. Some, it's a good question, yeah. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things come to mind. If you are selling, if you're in a business where you are selling similar merchandise to these two behemoths, and, and let's be real, like Amazon sells just about everything under the sun. So a couple of things. I talk to small businesses in my town here in New Jersey. Um, they try to increase their, their service experience. So you walk in their store and, you know, they have maybe an extra person working. It's expensive, but they want you to feel that they will answer every question you have and you will feel like you are welcome, like you're a member of their you know, their community. That's one. Another one is Amazon does a really poor job. Walmart, uh, in some ways too, at curation. You know, the online, it's, it's the everything store, but it's messy. It's not easy to necessarily find what you want or what you might want. And so curation and merchandising are still really important. The last thing I'll just say, if you're in a merchandise business, having some exclusive selection, it still exists. Brands that won't sell to Amazon or Walmart and trying to feature those, um, that's something that has worked for some small businesses as well. But it is, it's an uphill battle in most retail categories for anyone not named one of the big behemoths. Yeah, a friend of mine uh, told me that the battery went dead in his alarm. So he looked at the alarm company and $60 for a new battery, and then he went to battery.com. It was $40. It was $20 from Amazon and it was delivered to his door. I mean, that's very tough to compete with that sort of thing for any retailer. It is tough, and that's why, you know, you have some some critics um, in cer certain antitrust circles who uh, – who don't love that Amazon has sort of, in their opinion, been allowed to get to this point, uh, uh, whether it's through and what they see as anti-competitive behavior against their own sellers, or for many years, not having to collect sales tax um, on their orders up until you know the early 2010s when that finally changed, but in some ways you know felt like it was already too late. On the other hand, you write about Walmart and the way it plunders local communities. That's not too harsh a verb in terms of tax breaks. Uh, they do have that history. And, you know, I, I reread Sam Walton's uh, biography, Made in America, as I was reporting out my book. And um, he's, you know, he, he does not love a small business closing, but he was pretty plain-faced about the idea that if we come into your town and we're serving customers with better prices than you, or just you know, just giving them what they want. Um, well, maybe tough luck, but it's not that easy, of course, right? They they do do have a reputation of getting breaks from communities, but beyond that, just putting the squeeze on suppliers to such a large extent that we saw, you know, they're a big reason why we've seen so much uh, manufacturing uh, go out of this country over over the last few decades. Indeed, and here's David from Seattle. It says, Amazon has Amazon Vine, which gives selected individuals products at no cost but requires written reviews with photos or videos. Does Walmart have a comparable program to get reviews of new items? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. And I thought, 
I thought in the last couple of years, Amazon had put some real restrictions on the Vine program or, or turned it down a bit. I'm going to be candid. I don't know what, I have not seen what Walmart's similar program is. And um, if they have one, I'm not aware of it. If you want to find me online, I'm happy to look into that for you. And uh, it did not come, come up in my book, though. How much do they do really kind of hardcore PR? I mean, in ways that really enhance their business on a day-to-day basis. I'm talking about both Walmart and Amazon because I know you, like Brad Stone, had a lot of difficulty getting any access, any kind of access to Jeff Bezos, although oh, you yeah. did get to talk to him mainly about a clothing line. That's a great story. Maybe yeah. you can yeah. share that with us. But uh, I'm actually wearing, just for fun, I'm wearing the one uh, Amazon-branded uh shirt I have, although I, I read uh, one of my counterparts at the Wall Street Journal, I read her reporting yesterday, they're doing away with this brand I'm wearing called Good Threads, and so it'll soon be vintage. But yes, yeah, sorry. Sorry to interrupt me. No, but you you got to Bezos uh, asking him yeah. if he was wearing the clothes that they were presenting uh, in their merchandise, and uh, I mean, it was a quick conversation, but why that terror about anybody, reporter, journalist, even having face-to-face with him or talking to him, interviewing him? Yeah, yeah, you know, so they've uh, – I've, I've, sat, I've sat and watched some interviews with, with Jeff at conferences. It is never it, – it's been with some great interviews, but never with someone who's a beat reporter who knows the company really well, at least in the decade I've covered the company. I think, I think part of it is – they don't want to have the toughest conversations publicly. But I think a big part of it is this feeling at the top of the company that their critics are just misunderstood and wrong, and they don't want to engage with what they view as sort of bad faith arguments. And so, you know, for a guy who owns the Washington Post and, you know, uh, talks about how, how, how important journalism is to, to a free democracy, uh, you know, it's been a little disappointing for sure over the years, not only for myself, but, you know, there's a small group of us beat reporters who have covered the company for many years. And, uh, you know, we talk about it, of course, because it's, it's, it's not what you want. You know, we, we do our reporting in other ways, but you want this person who's one of the richest in the world, so much power in so many ways to, to answer, answer with the, the tough questions in their own, in their own words. Well, I was reading you started out wanting to be, or you were a sports journalist before you got into this world of commerce. Uh, very, I, I grew up dreaming of that, and I did do, uh, I did about a year of sports reporting at a daily newspaper in New Jersey before going back to graduate school, and and frankly, kind of falling. I, I grew up in a family of small business owners and entrepreneurs, so I love the business world, but I fell into business journalism because there were no good sports journalism jobs at the time. But that is now, um, that is now well, about 17 years ago. And so um, I, I, I've 100% fallen, fallen in love with business journalism as well, even with as difficult as it is to cover a company like Amazon and, and Walmart too. Well, what do you see as the future of retail, especially with AI on the rise? And I mean, we don't know where that's all going. We have glimmers of it and hopes as well as real fears, but where do you see it affecting retail and especially the digitalized world we're in now, as you alluded to it? Yeah. So some of the big retailers, I mean, I'll try not to give away too much sourcing, but you know, they, they're, you know, they're looking, they're looking to try to figure out, um, the search experience on a product site. They think that that, that will really be reinvented by, uh, AI, you're, you might not be searching for a product now. You may just be asking a recommendation, and uh, the technology is gonna is gonna f- spit back to you some really uh, personalized recommendations. Um, but they are also some of these companies are also looking to hire some some journalists or people with editorial background to make sure the AI kind of comes across as more human like, which. I don't know, frankly, how I feel about that. Um, so I think, I think in that regard, AI will, you know, just in the online search experience, will play a big role. But we're also seeing it in other ways in the supply chain. Um, Amazon has talked about using uh, AI to help uh, and machine learning to help 
them determine how to get the freshest produce. And, um, you know, so there's all, I think we are at this sort of tipping point uh, where I think the retail industry will be reinvented through technology. Um, but I think Walmart and some other big players are investing heavily as well. And I, I don't think it's just an Amazon ball game. Yeah, speaking of produce, uh, I came up with a fact that I thought was fascinating. I like to just weave these in because Walmart's best-selling well, item, bananas. They're the biggest banana vendor in the world. They sell about a one and a half billion pounds of bananas each year. Think of that old Louis Prima song, Yes, We Have No Bananas. But, I mean, this is really a dominant a factor about them. Uh, here's Olivia from St. Louis, and thank you for this question, Olivia. In terms of supply chain management, which you were just talking about, Jason, how does Walmart's renowned inventory management system compare to Amazon's distribution network? Oh, well, I, I mean, it, it, it Walmart's is is still absolutely renowned, but Amazon sort of created this a bit of a new part of the industry, which was these fulfillment centers with you know. Walmart's facilities previously, um, they were made to ship stuff by the pallet to stores. And so this idea of um, shipping one item out of a time through a fulfillment center, um, it was really in many ways a, an Amazon invention. That said, over the years, Walmart has now borrowed uh, a lot of ideas from Amazon along with some executives' expertise to try to mimic some parts of the Amazon delivery system, some parts of the middle mile of logistics. I lay a lot of this out in the book. There's a lot of tension here and uh, a lot of Walmart realizing that an Amazon playbook inside our company may sound great, but doesn't actually always work great with a different culture and a different expectation about work, what the work is, will be like from warehouse workers. So um, there's, a, there's a lot there. I think they both have their significant expertise and they've tried to borrow from each other, but not always to great success. Well, they've both been damned for meager wages and mistreatment of employees and labor problems and so forth. Uh, give us a little sense of how you take the pulse on that. Yeah, it's obviously a really important topic. There are the two largest uh, employers in this country outside of the federal government. And so um, they directly impact millions of employees uh, and how they do their work every day. Even beyond that, uh, so many companies look to these two, especially Amazon in recent years, as models for efficiency and productivity. And so there's this Amazonification, as if, you know, some people call it, of the workforce outside of Amazon. So the, so the tentacles reach far and wide. So that's why it's important. Um, it's a tough topic because in many ways their wages have increased to a point, yes, forced to do so by public pressure and government pressure, um, to where, you know, in some markets they are, you know, better payers than, than many others. On the other hand, this race for efficiency, productivity, and speed has led to automation, not, not that it's necessarily taking jobs away, but it's speeding up the work. And we see this case with Amazon in Washington State with the Department of Labor there, where these um, all these injuries that are not life-threatening, but they're injuries from repetitive motion, from having to pick 300, 400 items in an hour um, that comes with robots working aside the humans, um, that that is trickling over to Walmart as well. And so that's one space where um, I'm just watching because the wages are increasing, but these, you know, there are many unsafe jobs, but should Amazon and Walmart with how powerful and successful they are be, be the home to these types of injury rates? I mean, I think, I think a lot of people would say no. And a question from Reed uh, in Santa Rosa, and thank you for the question, Reed. Do you think Amazon and Walmart, with their resources, will step up significantly to help the residents of Maui? Be good PR oh. if they did. So. I mean, if if they if they do, you can be sure it's going to be uh, all over their social media accounts because absolutely good PR. Um, I remember a key sort of inflection point for Walmart as it relates to how they treat um, natural disasters and how they think about helping 
uh, was Hurricane Katrina, and they had this executive meeting at the time. And I think the CEO said to the his staff, I believe it was, I believe it might have been a CEO named Lee Scott at the time, and he said something like, "How about instead of just counting, you know, how much we're sending, how about if we just." send the bodies and the resources that we're told are needed. Needed, And um, they got a ton of good press there and they did good work. And I've seen Amazon do it, uh, the Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and um, other ways at the beginning of the war with Russia and Ukraine. And so if they haven't done it yet, I, I'd be shocked if there's not some work being done to, um, to get that in motion. And as you said, um, these both companies, I think they look for they look for the good PR they can get because there is there is a lot of bad PR as well. They wanted to get good PR with Theranos. In fact, I think they spent more than anybody about 150 million dollars with Theranos, didn't they? Uh, I so I thought that was actually I thought that was Walgreens and not Walmart that had. Uh, that had done Is that some Walgreens? Yeah, I, I stand corrected I, I, if that's the case. I thought it was Walmart. I thought it was Sam Walton and company. Yeah, I, I, I did not, I did not think so at Theranos, but I, I, one hundred percent sure Sam Walton wanted his company to be a big healthcare player, and um, you know, less than a year before he he passed away in nineteen ninety two, uh, when he found out how much. Uh, he was, they were, the hospital was upcharging him for an MRI and he found out the real cost behind it. Um, there's sort of, I dug up this YouTube video of him back in this, uh, internal meeting, just talking about the healthcare system and how Walmart really needs to do something about it it's several decades ago, but they're trying in many ways to reinvent it too. Well, what do they do for PR though? I mean, uh, I'm thinking about the fact that, um, Adam Werbach, who was a 23 year old, president of the Sierra Club, youngest in, in history. Uh, I remember doing an interview with him where he was talking about, we're not greenwashing anymore. We're doing real stuff about transportation so we don't build up the carbon. And they were for quite a while doing those sorts of things. I mean, innovating even, weren't they? Is that what, Walmart? Yeah. 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 No, they are absolutely. And um, I think it started off in the mid 2000s uh, with a, you know, a belief that we, what we've been doing PR wise and, and business wise is, is, is not working to satisfy our critics and they're only getting louder. And so the CEO, Lee Scott went on a little bit of a listening tour. They started making big changes, uh, toward a more becoming a more environmentally friendly company. Um, they're still critics of course. Um, but there has been a lot of uh, good done by them uh, for for a large mammoth company. Some will never be happy with how much they've done, but um, you know, solar on on every uh, I think on every roof of Supercenter and all sorts of uh, other things that that you alluded to. So I, I think yes, you know, recently in my neighborhood in New Jersey, I found uh, we've we've been getting uh, Amazon deliveries to our neighborhood. Uh, recently by electric uh, van. These are the Rivian, uh, Rivian vans. But I was in a parking lot uh, across, the, across the town, and I also saw a Walmart Plus, which is their you know, subscription service, it said Walmart Plus subscri- uh, delivery van, and that was also electric. And so um, part PR for sure, but uh, I think they're really trying to, um, you know, where they can, uh, spend money in a way that that has people look at them differently and not just as the ones um, sending up the global warming in this, you know, around this world. Well, we have from the source of authority, Alex, uh, telling us that Walton family invested $150 million in Theranos, mm. not Walmart. So, Okay. You. Well, we were, we were both wrong. I thought Walgreens was, was, wasn't you were closer? I thought Walgreens was involved as well, but he can he can tell us whether I'm right or not. Yeah. Well, the battle is on then, huh? They're still going at it, still at each other's throats. They they are, and um, you know they'll it'll get even more fierce uh, around the world. I mean, it's fierce here in the U.S., but one market where it's incredibly fierce is is also India, which both companies see as sort of. The next great e-commerce market, uh, they both sort of failed in their own ways in China. 
Uh, Walmart had some success there, and they look at the population of of India, um, the mobile phone and data penetration there, and uh, that that forced Walmart's hand to make the biggest acquisition in in its history back in 2018 when it bought a uh, 70-plus percent stake in a company called Flipkart, which was Amazon's main rival there, in fact, started by two former Amazon employees, um, which always adds some intrigue to any business battle. And so, um, yes, we we they care about each other a lot. They think about each other a lot, uh, no matter Amazon, what they say about customer obsession. And um, my only hope is that this battle continues to have more positive outcomes for everyday people than than negative. Um, so we'll see. What would embellish that hope or what would give that flight? You know, I, I man, uh, continuing to see improvements in, in working conditions and how they treat their lowest paid employees. Uh, I talked to Doug McMillan, the CEO, about this when I met with him in Bentonville last year for the book. And uh, he said they'll continue to w- raise wages, sometimes with the help of automation, uh, take, taking away some of the most menial work. Uh, but he also said, you know, I, in his opinion, there's too much focus on the entry-level wage and that you get, you get rewarded at Walmart by moving up. You talk to a Walmart employee and they'll say, man, it's really hard to move up and some managers are taken advantage of with how thinly they're spread. And so, um, you know, some pressure on the labor front, I think would be good for the millions of people who work there. And then we'll see what happens with the FTC potential antitrust suit against Amazon and whether that leads to them uh, having a more fair relationship with the hundreds of thousands of merchants who sell through their site. Turns out, by the way, that Walgreens invested 140 million in Theranos, just, just for the record. Okay, um, makes me feel a little better. <laughs> well, you get a lot of your facts straight. That's really what matters, uh, and uh, have a, a track record there. I'm just wondering about the pandemic and how it affected both of these huge behemoths, as you call them, or these Goliaths, because this kind of statistic stays in your head. One out of every two dollars that was spent online was spent either with Walgreens or with Amazon. I mean, that's just extraordinary. But bricks and mortar, again, was probably hurt a lot more, to put it mildly. Yeah, so Walmart, um, you know, it was one of them, besides Amazon's pressure on them over the years, the pandemic forced them, maybe more than anything else, to finally utilize their stores as sort of mini warehouses to help with online orders, both for pickup and delivery. They had no choice but to start shipping stuff out of their uh, stores directly to customer homes and also to provide more convenient pickup services. The local Walmart near me now has 15 dedicated parking spots just for pickup orders that uh, you place online and they, they bring them out to your car. I wouldn't be surprised if I go back in the next year and there's 30 spots because they are always full. So in that way, force their hand. Um, taking care of an employee base that big during a pandemic uh, that we have, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen in at least a century, um, very difficult. And I think in early days, employees would say in some parts of the country, each of them failed in keeping them uh, safe or, and being as transparent about the illness um, as, as employees would have liked. Amazon's hand, it was, I mean, record sales, record profits that first year of the pandemic. Uh, But they started building out warehouses as if these e-commerce growth numbers were permanent, that this was the completely the new normal. And we've seen it sort of go back to more of a steady, steady increase of e-commerce penetration in this country. So it caused Amazon to be, um, to have millions, tens of millions of extra warehouse space, some extra store space that they've been trying to unload for years. Um, and I think some of that probably had an impact on their bottom line for sure, which may have led to some of the corporate layoffs we've seen uh, at Amazon over the last year. Twenty-seven thousand corporate employees—the biggest uh, layoffs in their in their company history. Could be more layoffs with AI. Is that inevitable? And with all these robots? And- I mean, I feels feels inevitable. Um, both companies will tell you. 
uh, AI and the auto and the robots just help their existing employees um, work better, work more efficiently. Uh, they don't mention the increase in quotas for these workers that come with working alongside robots. But you know, inside Amazon, I've reported this and others have as well. They do. There is a dream that they can have a warehouse one day that's called a lights out facility, which is. Um, robots and only robots with maybe a few uh, specialized technicians to treat the robots when they uh, malfunction or ro- or fall over. So um, I think it's a potential future, but right now they are still uh, massive employers and that, that won't change overnight. Well, you're in Jersey and not that far from you, I think, was where Amazon wanted to build an AOC's district and uh, there were some serious conflicts as a result. Uh, Amazon moved away. I mean, that whole story yeah. is very revealing, isn't it? Politically. I think so. And I, yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. So, so that was in uh, Queens, New York. And um, my opinion at the time and to this day was, I think both sides. So that's the local politicians who are against Amazon coming in as well as Amazon. I think, uh, I think they both aired there. I think there was some common ground that could have been reached but Amazon did what sometimes it does when it feels like it's being unfairly targeted, which is, you know, they they disengage and they, you know, as I wrote, I think some others, they picked up their ball and went home. And um, I think they actually could have had some really great PR if they, uh, you know, came to that table, at least had some negotiations about, you know, making some tweaks, some big changes to uh, the tax incentives and breaks they were getting. But that's not in their DNA, and so um, was maybe wrong of me and other journalists uh, to expect them to do so. What's the status of their relationship with the unions or unionization in general? Yeah, so um, I mean, they like Walmart are are fiercely uh, anti-union. Um, they feel that they don't need that they have open door policies and. Uh, you know they will. I think their their spin is that uh, they will become uh, inflexible or less innovative if they allow. But we did see, and that's in in the U.S. We did see one union election victory in Staten Island, New York, um, at a warehouse there, actually my hometown. Um, and uh, but the the organizers there have of that union, which was a brand new union called the Amazon Labor Union. They've had real trouble trying to get Amazon even to the table. Amazon's been contesting that election. Um, And then there's also been some infighting within that upstart union. So in Europe, Amazon warehouses, there are some unions that have penetrated, but um, it's still a really long game in the U.S. And uh, the battle seems even even harder to win uh, with seeing how they fought back uh, once that election didn't go their way. I didn't know you were from Staten Island. Wow. Uh, born in Brooklyn, New York, but I was raised in, uh, for better or worse, the, the fifth and forgotten borough of New York City, Staten Island, New York. Yes. Yeah. yeah, my wife is from Staten Island. Oh, wow. Well, then, I mean, we have a whole nother show to have. But yeah. maybe that's we do a time. whole uh, show on Staten Island. That would be... Um I wonder how many downloads we get there nationally and globally. What do you think? People love to hate. I feel like there's a lot of Staten Island haters in the world, so maybe people would hate listen to us, Michael. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm just the opposite. I like Staten Island. Uh, some sometime when we're not doing a podcast, we can talk about Staten Island. That'd be fun. That'd to be do. nice. But in the meantime, where do you see all this going? Where, where's the trajectory at this point in your head? Yeah, I think. Um, you know, Walmart, so under their CEO, Doug McMillan, has been there about a decade now in the CEO role. He's a lifer. Um, they, they've really transformed into a company that at least uh, gives customers, online customers, a sufficient second option that can be pretty convenient if convenience is what you're after as an online shopper. Both companies, though, you know, honestly, my chapter on healthcare, I think it's possible we look back 10 years from now, and that's the most important uh, chapter because they both think that, at least in the US, the healthcare system is broken, um, costs are too high, 
and that they should be able to innovate in this space. So we see Walmart actually opening physical clinics called Walmart Health Clinics. They're sort of super centers of medical care. They're attracting some pretty good doctors uh, with with high pay um, from big cities. And um, there's a, you know, the biggest struggle there as a Walmart health executive told me was they can't keep the best talent uh, on board there because at the core, they're still a retail company, not a health company. But they're going to try, the Walton family wants them to innovate there. Amazon's doing the same. And so that's, that's the future battle I'm watching very closely. Um, and then what happens with the Federal Trade Commission potential antitrust suit against Amazon? Um, if they're forced to make any big changes, it may not happen for years, but that could turn this battle upside down in a different way as well. We saw where Walmarts in rural areas where they need medical care and doctors perhaps to a much greater degree, immeasurably more than they do in the big cities where Walmarts may, mainly are. Um, but you're talking about Doug McMillan and CEOs. I mean, there's still all this battle about the salaries and the perks that CEOs get as opposed to obviously not only rank-and-file employees but just employees in general, a huge chasm and gap. Now we're hearing Fran Drescher harping on this, the nanny, yeah. because of the strike that's going on uh, with AFTRA and uh, writers in Hollywood and so forth. Um, how does that, from your perspective, as you describe yourself as somewhat of a beat reporter, how does that essentially come down in your mind? Yeah, I mean, for for the critics, they just look at uh, the overall compensation numbers and the multiples of, you know, how many, how many, you know, 100 times or whatever the numbers are the CEO makes over average or media or lowest, you know, ranked employees. And it it's much different than it used to be. And it's kind of hard to understand. Um, you'd get the, you know, you get the big leaders though. They're saying, well, you know, my base salary, they won't say this publicly, but I know they're thinking it. Uh, my base salary is only, uh, I don't know, a million bucks and the rest is stock. And if, you know, investors see this much value in this and I'm the leader, like, why shouldn't I be rewarded? But, um, you know, they really try not to harp on it in any discussions. I think Doug McMillan makes um, all in, including his stock, uh, over $20 million every every year. And um, that's really hard pill for, to swallow for a lot of employees there who are um, really struggling to just make it by. And uh, it's it's the beauty and the curse of, of capitalism in this country. And I I, I don't see it changing anytime soon, but it's sure to the average person, sure doesn't feel right. Was McMillan a little bit of a Horatio Alger story? I mean, he was an Arkansas boy who started down, not necessarily at the bottom, but near the bottom, didn't he, with Walton's? Yeah, he, um, I think for how much power he has and how important he is to the world's largest retailer, I still think he's kind of an undercovered and a uh, little bit of an unknown figure. And part of that's by plan, although people at Walmart largely love him. Great leader. Started uh, warehousing in, in warehousing a job in high school. Um, you know, Pat, I forget what the exact wage was, but something really low. Uh, went to grad school and then started off handling the candy department and the tackle department. So he did work his way up. At some point, the Walton family identified him as a future leader and people who were a little miffed that uh, he got seemed to get some special direction inside the company. They called it, um, he had his own personal improvement plan. So, you know, they, they made sure he got a wall, the international CEO job at one point to get a worldly view. Then he ran the Sam's Club business. Uh, so they identified him pretty early. And, and listen, I talked to over 150 people for this book, some of whom left the company at Walmart, not on great terms, but 90% of what I heard was really positive about this, this leader, his down-to-earth nature, his curiosity. But some will say it's not enough if you look at the wages of the employees or what Walmart's done historically to, to the small business Main Street communities around the country. You didn't talk to that many malefactors, huh? I mean... Yeah, I mean, listen, um, there's just... I tried to spread out my sourcing across uh, 
just about any type of constituent I could. A current, I did talk to current executives at both companies, tons of former employees and executives, warehouse employees at both companies, um, uh, labor critics, antitrust critics. Um, uh, in Doug's case specifically, since I wrote a chapter on him, I did also ask the company if they had anyone from his history who they'd like me to talk to. So talked to a guy named Bert Stacy who uh, ran the Bank of Bentonville and had Doug as an intern back in college. Uh, and so I got some great color from Bert. So, um, you know, I tried to find any type of opinion and uh, perspective I could in, in reporting this book on these two giants. When Macmillan and you were in conversation, I mean, you're meeting this guy with great power and great yeah. wealth and so forth. That can be very seductive, I mean, to a guy out there with his uh, n notebook taking uh, oh, serious notes. Listen, listen, I think, I think a great journalist will uh, take access when they can get it as long as that access does not define their book. And so, you know... The amount of people I talked to, f amount of sources for the book that um, that were sort of given to me through approval from each company was, I think, less than ten percent of the total number of people I spoke to for the book. But I I'll I'll be candid. Of course, I want to hear someone's words out of their mouth, and uh, it is better. I mean you can make a more compelling case in person uh, as a powerful leader than you can through a PR person, I believe, or through email. And so I do feel like I got to know Doug a little bit better uh, with the uh, 90 minutes or so uh, he allocated me inside the same CEO office that Sam Walton once, uh, once worked out of as well. He can win you over though. He can be folksy and, you know, very uh, good with people. I'm just, I'm thinking about Janet Malcolm's book, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with, where she talks sure. about the need for a journalist to be uh, to win somebody over and win their trust because you got to ask hard questions, and that's always a delicate balance. Yeah, I think. Listen, ultimately, readers will decide whether I achieve that balance. Um, I think he has a great reputation, and so I think you know inside the company and people who used to work there. So. Um, I think in that regard, that will come through in chapter three of my book, which I write about him called, uh, I think it's titled The Hometown Boy. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, criticisms about his wage and other wages and his decision making, that come, those come through as well. So uh, I aspire to uh, a fair approximate, approximation of who he is and the impact he's had, but um, I'm sure I'll continue to hear back what readers think about that. The real question is, will he give you another interview now that your book is out? I mean, I've, he I've heard from him a little bit, uh, but uh, can I write his biography? Um, I, I don't know if I'll have access for that. Here's Ethan. who says, as we see Taylor Swift donating millions of dollars to local <laughs> charities in every city she visits in the era's tour, should large retailers consider doing more for their communities to show a greater connection? I mean, I, I, I think yes, and I think, I think both yeah. of us would say yes and give our assent to that, you know. <laughs> but the question is, how do they look at it from that perspective? You know, what could do them, NPR? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I talked back when I was working on a, a documentary podcast project year before I started working on the book, uh, the Land of Giants series you you referenced. I went down to Kansas where, where Amazon used to have one of their earliest warehouses, Coffeyville, Kansas. Um, and uh, I was talking to a bunch of people who worked there, some former managers, and they said at the time, like, it was really up to the local general manager of a warehouse what, if anything, they wanted to do for a community. And uh, so you'd have a really thoughtful GM, you know, take some money out of his budget to throw a little town event. And you'd have others who said, like, we're our benefit, yeah, the, how we can benefit this community is through hiring folks. And so I think Amazon has long felt in a lot of different ways that the benefits they can give a community or a certain type of uh, geography is through their core business and nothing else. Um, I think their tune has changed a bit with the blowback from that headquarters search. And so um, you will see them a little more active in some communities. But 
Uh, neither will bowl you over with uh, trying to win the local citizen uh, of the year award. I wonder if you could, we, we just have a few minutes left. I wonder if you could talk about some of the interviews you've done and what you derived and what you really were able to process and advance your own thinking. And uh, I noticed, for example, you talked to the worldwide VP of uh, Grocery Amazon. You also talked to the co-founder and CEO of Tropicals and the head of Old Navy. And these were all women, interestingly enough. Uh, but these are real movers and shakers. Anything that really comes to mind off the top? Yeah. So, um, so some of those, right. So some of those weren't for this book. Um, but, um, no, it's for so, your other project actually. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so over the years, other projects, yeah, I've, you know, um, you know, through the recode and the code conference, um, you know, I've interviewed, uh, you know, Brian Cornell who runs target, uh, you know, other, a, a ton of female uh, CEO leaders in the retail world. Um, I guess a couple of things that I've learned, takeaways from my business reporting career. But before you go there, let me ask you, sure. Is it, uh, sure. do you get the sense that it's still really tough for its female CEOs because they're females? Oh, I mean, I think, I think there's a- absolutely um, business world, uh, like the glass ceiling still can exist. I think just look at the numbers in Fortune 500, not only of female CEOs, but also um, CEOs who are, who are not white. So people of color and, um, there's still, it is, it is still not easy and, um, and can be very difficult, even more difficult depending on what, what industry you're in. So, um, progress for sure. But, um, sometimes it feels like in some of these industries, it's two steps forward or a step forward and two back. Um, but I, you know, I, I continue to remain hopeful there. Um, and hopefully in the, in the venture capital startup community, we'll see, you know, some more progress as well. Sounds like um, a good assessment, but now your takeaways. <laughs> yeah. My takeaways, um, all these interviews I've done over the years. One is you alluded to this when you're talking about interviewing Doug and, um, trying to remain, uh, neutral man, storytelling in business narratives in business like really <laughs> have an impact on the future of the company. And I, I hate admitting that as a journalist who strives to be immune to corporate spin and corporate, uh, corporate, uh, born narratives, but executives and leaders who are great storytellers, both internally and externally, um, really are a huge advantage for a company. One, one in mind from my book is an entrepreneur named Mark Laurie, who, who sold one big company to Amazon, then another giant one to, to Walmart. And that may be his greatest thing is he's a corporate vision setter and, and storyteller and makes people believe. Even smart people who probably shouldn't believe in an idea, he makes them believe. Uh, that's a key take. That's one key takeaway. I don't know if you want any more from me. That's a key one. That's an important yeah. one. And uh, thank you. We've gotten, I think, a lot from you and enjoyed very much talking to you. And learn from you, from your writing, as well as uh, the opportunity to talk with you today. So I thank you, and I also extend thanks to all who had the opportunity to listen live to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, which will be available on Apple and Spotify and at graymatter.show, where you can also sign up for membership. That's Gray with an E. Special thanks to our Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and Jeff, and thanks to this episode's special guest, Jason Del Rey. Thanks so much, Michael. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.